promise to her grandfather that she's kept, and about all the museum's exhibits, each one just as her grandfather left it. There are a few surprises as well as memories in this museum. Did you know, for instance, that Zhou Fen's gold comes out of the grounds completely black? All that glitters may not be gold, but as it turns out, the opposite is just as true. I'm very curious to find out what that's all about. Join us again next week as we return to the Zhou Fen Gold Ore Museum. I'm Curious John, and I'll see you again next time. From a fruit market in Tel Aviv to a fish seller in Taipei, the people of our world are working hard to make a living. Are you listening? Tune in to the sounds of your world on Radio Taiwan International. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In the Spotlight. Welcome to In the Spotlight. Crystal Liu is a freelance artist, activist, slash event facilitator. She was born in Taipei, but later moved to Shanghai because of her dad's business. She studied at an international school in Shanghai and went on to university in the States. She could remember the days when she was in Shanghai. She said people there would mistake her and her brother as twins because of the one-child policy. Back then, she said there were only two types of cars on the streets, basically taxis and buses. But now China has developed so much and so fast that she could never have imagined that Shanghai would become the way it is now back when she was living there. And she only left China in 2012, just six years ago. She really likes art and studied art to her dad's disappointment, who would have wanted her to do anything but art. She went from drawing to photography, performance art, sculpture, and installation art. In L.A., she hung out with a lot of feminist artists. So, when she came back to Taiwan, she had the idea to start Taiwan's very first Women's March in 2017. Let's hear her talk about how that went and everything about it. You only came back in January and you organized a march in March. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a very, very short time. How did you guys manage? Because apparently it was very successful. How many people showed up? Um, not a lot of people showed up, about a hundred, almost a hundred. How did you go about doing it? How do you even organize something like that? We all felt like there is a need to do something. We just emailed and called everyone that we know of that are involved in human rights and women's rights. Right. Okay. And people that we feel like are aligned with our mission and mm -hmm. invited them to to come join the march and we also promote it on facebook and did you guys do anything special how long was it and from where to where it's from freedom square freedom square uh oh yeah oh yeah the china memorial, memorial hall, hall right in front of uh, one of the gates uh, okay and we walked to uh don park and then we <laughs> begged the owner of louisa cafe to let us use this balcony outside Oh, okay. And we borrowed the lights from like a guitar club. And we set up mics for the speakers. Yeah. And who spoke? We invited some legislators, including um, women legislators. Yeah, yeah. Yo oh. Mei Nu. Yes. Um, right. A very respectful female from the second wave feminist movement in Taiwan. Yes. But and she's also the one who pushed for marriage equality. Marriage equality. And also uh, Jason Xu, Xu Ren. 
Okay. Who also pushed for marriage equality. And yes, by the way, the march was not just only women who not participated women, in the march. Yeah. yeah. We really were. want to build an environment welcoming like everyone to join. Mm. Men, women, children, Taiwanese, the people of different backgrounds. Basically, that march got the media's attention, right? We tried to invite a lot of media. <laughs> yeah. So how did that turn out? Yeah. Because you guys organized the second march this year. Yes. Uh, in March. And um, how many people turned up this time? I think about 300 All or right. 400. Don't it was up. raining. <laughs> it was raining it too. It was pouring. Yeah. Really? I don't we were wearing raincoats at that day. Yeah. But okay. We completed the march. Yeah. yeah. The same um, route as uh, um, the front. We also started at... Uh, Freedom Square, but then uh, destination was at Red Room near oh. Zhongxiao Dunhua. It's an art community space. Com- right, yeah. right, exactly. Yeah. Yes, I've and it's indoors, so it's yeah. it's great. It's perfect. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> and you are going to keep it up every year having this march. Yes. After the first the women's march in Taipei in 2017, we tried to build the community and host events every month. So, so like like gatherings or um, discussions, we even invited some of the speakers from the local women's rights foundations in Taiwan and yeah. also connected with some of the international groups as well. So abroad? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. And so we did like a music concert thing at Sanlan Shiguang, a Southeast Asian bookstore in Taiwan. So all, all sorts of fun, fun events to promote equality. And then this year on Women's Day, we had the march, mm-hmm. but we also had a art exhibition and an yeah. art celebration as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. Did you exhibit some of your art pieces there? I didn't. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to manage everything <sighs> because I was kind of like the curator and yeah, have to like make the, sure everything's okay. So you think you're going to be the main organizer every year for the Women's March from now on, you think? Well, of course, but I'm not only doing it by myself. We have a great team. You have a team of how many people now? Around six. And oh, okay, still just the faithful six. <laughs> yeah, and we welcome more people to join us because yeah. I believe that this is a movement and I believe in diversity as well. Mm. Yeah. Well, you did say that you tried to support women's rights through your art. Because after all, you're an artist activist, right? <laughs> well, yes, but I think art is a part of my life. An art piece doesn't necessarily need to be in a gallery or museum. Uh. It can be on the streets as well. Yeah, occasionally I still perform. I think the last piece that I did with um, Women's March Taiwan is, is at a Mulan party. Oh, Mulan party. <laughs> you know, like Mulan yeah. from Disney. Yes. So we did like this calligraphy performance where a calligrapher writes on our backs so the writing would be your manifesto about related to um, Mulan your expression and gender fluidity it seems like your art form is mostly performance on stage you mean my latest art pieces are all performance art Uh I will call and it's not necessarily on stage it's mostly in site specific locations and like on the streets do you guys like put on these performances at specific sites throughout Taipei City when when can people see I mean you don't have a set schedule is it no usually when we're angry or upset Yeah, usually when when we feel like there is a need to speak up. Okay, maybe something happened in the news. 
Yes. And um, you felt like you need to make a statement. So that's when you decided to put on a performance on the street to, to make a statement about it. Yes. Okay, well, we just had the elections. <laughs> so I think uh, many people are pretty down and uh, upset about the results of the referendum. Yes. But it means that we have a long way to go. It's kind of a depressing moment to a lot of people in the LGBT community, people that believe in gender equality. But I think the result also shows that there are a lot of supporters. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I think if I remember correctly, something like three million people. Yes. Yes. Kind of uh, over three million. Yeah. Voted in support of uh, certain referenda relating to marriage equality and all that. Yes. I think the other thing that I want to point out is that like through Women's March Taiwan, we try and really communicate with you know people that doesn't know about the situation of women in Taiwan, you know people that you know are not feminists, people like men and people that don't care about the mm-hmm. society. You're listening to In the Spotlight with Shirley Lin. So how are people in Taiwan responding to the things that you're doing in terms of women's rights? All the different things that you're, you know, that you organize, you know, every month? It's been really good. Um, yeah, especially among young people, I suppose. Yeah. There we, are more young people with participation, right? Than yes. like maybe maybe older generation like me. <laughs> there are some Parents. like moms that come. Moms. And also like married men. Yeah. But there are a lot of young people as well. I think... Um, a lot of people tell us that they have not participated in like events like this because our events are more interactive. We really care about the people. All of our events are bilingual. Uh-huh. So which means that, you know, people that who speak English can communicate with people that speaks Chinese uh-huh. and can learn about, you know, the situation of women in Taiwan and really communicate to each other. Um and I think our events are fun. I try to make, we try to make the all of our events entertaining because yeah. you know. Can you yeah? Can you describe one that was you thought was uh, pretty successful? I think <laughs> I enjoy all of them. Um, so we organize a kind of like a gathering meetup at Ama Museum. Mm-hmm. A, a, Wait, the AMA Museum. AMA Museum in Dadaochen. Yes, um, we need to explain this. It's a woman's. It's a. I don't remember the specific name, but it's it's like a woman's rights and uh, peace museum. Yes. Uh, started in, by uh, a, a woman's foundation in Taiwan. Right. Yeah. It's actually to commemorate all those who were comfort women. Comfort women. Yeah. Yeah. Back in uh, World War Two. So. Um, Yes, I think we used to have a few comfort women who remain and who, you know, who um, really wanted to get an official apology from Japan for what um, what has happened to them. And um, but Japan, I don't want to get political here, but but Japan kind of delayed this um, this apology. And eventually all these comfort women have all passed away. Except for one or a few who are yes. really left now, um, who you know were comfort women back in those days. Yeah. So anyway, this museum was um, established in, in commemoration of that. Yes. 
Yes, it's a it's a amazing. Wow! So museum. you had an event held there in a museum. Yes. Uh huh. We invited a uh, uh, one of our our friend Delphine. She's an energy healer and oh. also a a person that does therapy through physical movements. Oh, okay. And we played some like theater games, and then we each did did a drawing explaining why why we care about gender equality. Oh, that's really very fun. abstract kind of drawing, I suppose. Um, everyone has different expressions. Right. Did <laughs> yeah. you did you I t- did, participate? I did too? one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I drew a drawing of my uh, professor from uh, the feminism theory class. Oh yeah. wow! She's okay. she's a really pretty woman. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. Have you kept it? Yeah, I kept it. Oh, okay. I'll show you next time. <laughs> All right. And have you showed it to your teacher who actually? Gave no, that? not yet. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Maybe I should take email a, her. Yeah. yeah, take a photo of it and send it to her. She'll be very moved. Yeah, yeah I think uh, a lot of times through these events, uh, people start to open up and share about their personal stories. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What you're doing makes me think of like Me Too, you know, and all those um, um, sexual assaults that uh, men had done on women, even like women celebrities, mm-hmm. and how they decided to come out and speak up. Um, what you do is tough. I think and it takes perseverance. Yeah, I think um, like in Taiwan, because like, there are dif- there are different women's march chapters um, in different cities. Um, in Taiwan, we try to localize. Okay. And understand what are the needs here. Oh, good. Yeah. All right. Great. <laughs> it was good talking to you, Crystal. Thank you. I mean, I'm. I'm moved by the fact that you're a young woman and, um, you know, you're standing up to do what is right and also, you know, what's good for society. And uh, this is going to be a tough, a tough road to take because I know it's tough. It's always been there for so many years. And yet, yet, you know, women are just not treated as equal in still in a lot of countries. And so um, this is going to be tough on you know, it's it's a tough road to take, but uh, but um, I think you're awesome. So, great. Thank you. All right. Good luck, and thank you so much for taking the time to come in. And I got to learn about you and about Women's March and all that kind of stuff. This has been exciting. Thank you so much, Crystal. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
Taiwan, a small island with a whole world of sounds. Classic shorts, stories from Chinese history and literature. Hello and welcome to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie So. Today, let me continue to bring you the work of the poet Bai Juyi, one of the most famous and widely read poets of the Tang Dynasty. His most celebrated poem tells the story of Emperor Shenzong of the Tang Dynasty, the last emperor, and his favorite concubine, Yang Guifei. It is considered a literary masterpiece. It was written in 809 and tells a love story between the emperor and his favorite concubine. She was later blamed for the fall of the empire and forced to commit suicide. The poem is called The Song of Everlasting Regret. The emperor of China longed for beauty, able to topple the empire. Despite many years of reign, he could not fulfill his desire. Meanwhile, alas, in the young family had reached puberty. As she was raised deep in her boudoir, no one knew her beauty. Her heavenly glamour could not be concealed forever. One day she was chosen to entertain the emperor. When she turned and smiled, the coquetry created was tremendous, rendering all concubines of the six palaces lusterless. She was privileged to bathe in watching spa on a cold day of spring. Washing her creamy skin with slippery water of the warm spring, as she was languorous, a maid helped her out of the spa. This was when they first made it, the beginning of a saga. Her cloud-like hair was held by a gold hairpin, her face flowery. They spent the night under the warmth of a hibiscus canopy. They rose with the sun up high, complaining of the night too short. From this day on, the emperor missed each and every morning court. Between revels and banquets, the emperor was fully occupied. Every spring day they toured, and by night they copulated. All 3,000 concubines in the rear palaces were ignored. On only one person was the royal affection concentrated. In her gold chamber, she dressed up and entertained the emperor indulging in ebriety and coition after every feast at Jade Tower. All her sisters and brothers had royal domain granted. Imperial but pitiful glory on the young family was bestowed. On the mindset of all parents, her success was a strong influence. Baby girls instead of baby boys became the popular preference. The palace rose upright, high into the atmosphere. 
Divine music carried by the wind was heard everywhere. Strings and pipes accompanied soft songs and slow dances. Day after day, the emperor could not get enough of these. One day, the war drums for Yuyang came and shook the ground, interrupting the tune of the rainbow dress and feather gown. From inside the nine-tier imperial walls, dust clouds originated. Thousands of wagons moved southwest as the monarch retreated. When they paraded, the imperial banner waved and led the way. Suddenly, the troops halted west of the capital, just 30 miles away. All six regiments refused to march, rendering the emperor powerless. Her execution in front of the steeds was torturous and hopeless. The scatter of her precious jewelry on the ground added to the sorrow. Among them was a green jade comb with a decorative gold sparrow. Refrained from saving her, the emperor covered his face. Tears dropped like her blood shed as he turned to gaze. The chilly wind facilitated the yellow dust to propagate. Via torches' trails in the cloud, they crossed the sword gate. Beneath Mount Amay, travelers were hardly seen. The imperial banner lost its gleam in the sunset scene. But Shu rivers remained blue and Shu mountains green. Day in and day out, His Majesty's eternal love grew keen. Viewing the moon in the temporary palace escalated sadness. Hearing wind charms and rainy nights deepened brokenheartedness. Finally, the rebellion was suppressed and the monarchy reinstated. As they returned to the very spot, the emperor hesitated. Under the Mawe slope, he searched in the mud, but failed to find any trace where she shed her blood. The emperor and his ministers all wept in a gloomy state. Their horses took them eastward back to the capital gate. That was just the first part of this masterpiece by Bai Yi, The Song of Everlasting Regret. Thanks for tuning in to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie Sell. This is Radio Taiwan International. Welcome to the RTI Time Machine. Today's time traveler is John Van Trieste and the destination Wu Fong. Few families in Taiwan's history have reached the illustrious heights that the Lins of Wu Fong have. With their wealth and influence, they stood center stage in three eras of Taiwan's history. From the battlefield to government and culture, they distinguished themselves in a range of fields. They also built a grand family compound containing what may be Taiwan's most precious collection of historic buildings. 
In this series of programs, we'll be joined by Mr. Lin, part of the family's ninth generation to live in Taiwan. We'll wander the compound, exploring the buildings and gardens, and hearing about their history. We'll also hear about the disaster that nearly flattened it all. To start off with, though, we're taking a look this week at where the family came from and how it climbed so high. The first of the Lins in Taiwan was Lin Shi, who arrived in 1746. He was among the ethnic Chinese migrants crossing to the parts of Taiwan then under imperial Chinese rule. Like many, he came in search of land and a better life. In later generations, the family would make its way to the Wufeng area of central Taiwan. Taiwan has an awful lot of people named Lin, and adding the name of the family's home base helped people distinguish the Wufeng Lin family from the rest. Up until the fifth generation in Taiwan, the Wufeng Lin family was completely ordinary. Then came the 1850s. As a rebel group threatened Taiwan, family member Lin Wencha emerged as a successful militia leader. He'd never led an official force before, but his success made those in charge pay attention. The secret to his success was the rapport between his men. They all knew each other from back in Wufeng, and they fought on together with a sense of purpose. Hired troops of the day, by contrast, had low morale and little motivation. Mr. Lin says these official troops often broke ranks and fled. Lin Wencha would go on to become a military official of the highest rank. In the end, he'd be called away to help the empire put down the bloody Taiping Rebellion, and he'd lose his life while on campaign away from Taiwan. Back home, though, he'd left a legacy, a rising family name, and a pair of buildings he'd had constructed next to the old family home, the first seat of the family compound. Lin's military genes would pass on to the sixth generation. In the 1880s, when France invaded the northern city of Qilong, Lin Chaodong got together 500 militiamen and helped hold up French forces. But Lin Chaodong would not follow his father by dying in battle. Instead, he made a career change, one that would make the family's fortune. It all started with a railroad. After the war with France, Taiwan was upgraded to a full-fledged province. Taiwan's first provincial governor, Liu Mingchuan, had seen Lin's contributions during the war and gave him a job. The governor wanted to build Taiwan's first railroad, but Mr. Lin says getting access to wood for railroad ties was a problem. The trees were in the heavily forested mountains, and logging brought conflict with local indigenous peoples. By lending the protection of their by now famous militia, the Wufeng Lin family helped make sure the railroad got built. While in the forests, the Wufeng Lin's men made a discovery, camphor trees. In the 19th century, the camphor made from this wood was a big global commodity used among other things for making smokeless gunpowder. And Taiwan just happened to be one of the world's richest sources of the raw material. Lin Chaodong was given a post, one that put him in control of the government monopoly on Taiwan's camphor. 
At one point, Mr. Lin says, 80% of the world's camphor supply came to pass through his family's hands. The Wu Lin family was now wealthy as well as influential. With this money, they added even more buildings to the family compound and established a garden considered one of Taiwan's finest. It's not without reason that the compound is often called a mansion. But the family wasn't just enriching itself. Camphor lifted the economic fortunes of a whole region of Taiwan, a mountainous stretch of the north that was otherwise resource poor. In this camphor country, Lin Chaodong was a popular man. Out of gratitude for the better life he made possible, people in one corner of Miaoli County even enshrined him in a local temple. And this was no memorial. When the people started worshipping him, he was very much still alive. In 1895, Japan took control of Taiwan, beginning a 50-year period of colonial rule. Under the new order, the Wufenglins could no longer fight. But though they had to disarm, the Wufenglin family kept going strong. Mr. Lin says the colonial authorities valued local elites like his family. And by the end of the Japanese era, the Wufenglins were classed as one of Taiwan's five great families. The star of this new era was Lin Xiantang, a champion of both public education and Taiwanese home rule. The Japanese period saw the founding of a modern school system in Taiwan. But for the first few decades of Japanese rule, the island's middle schools were reserved for the children of Japanese colonials. In 1915, Lin Xiantang was among those who gathered the funds to build their own middle school in the city of Taichung. They donated it to the authorities on the condition that it be a school for Taiwanese students. It was the first school of its kind. Middle school opened the way for even higher education, and many of this school's early students would go on to impressive careers. Once, Lin Xiantang met the visiting Chinese reformist Liang Qichao, and the meeting left him inspired. From him, Lin got the idea of trying to change the terms of colonial rule. Perhaps Taiwan's relationship with Japan could be redefined, taking as a model proposals for home rule in Ireland. Taiwan could have autonomy and even its own elected assembly in charge of local affairs. Lin Xiantang became part of a push to make home rule a reality, even traveling to Japan to deliver petitions. There was enthusiasm, but results never came. Home rule by itself wouldn't be enough for Taiwan anyway. Lin Xiantang had traveled widely, and he came to share a conviction Taiwanese intellectuals were coming to agree on. In order to advance Taiwan's position in the world, Taiwan's people needed culture and education. In the 1920s, the Taiwan New Culture Movement sprang up in response, and Lin was a leading figure. During the 1930s, Lin Xiantang and his son also took leading roles in another organization that put together public lectures and screenings of films. Politics, economics, and even handicrafts, the topics were varied, but all had the common goal of raising Taiwan's educational and cultural level. The end of World War II in 1945 also brought the end of Japanese rule. 
Now the family's fortunes were about to change. Whereas the old imperial order had lifted the family to the highest heights, and the Japanese authorities had at least respected the family, the new post-war government wanted to hem it in. Chiang Kai-shek was now in charge, and he wanted to break the kind of local power that landowners like the Wu Lins had. The way he set about doing this was through land reform. Mr. Lin said the process involved nationalizing land in exchange for stock. He says the policy sent the family's influence and wealth quickly tumbling. It was exactly as the new government had hoped. Lin Xiantang couldn't abide by this program, and he left for Japan, never to return. Today, the Wu Lin family protects irreplaceable pieces of cultural heritage, a legacy for all Taiwan. Next week, we're meeting the buildings that make up the family compound, and also heading to the gardens, a place of poetic views with a literary past. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another Journey Through Time. harder for journalists to operate, not only in the countries that are dictatorial, but also in democracies where there is a growing wave of anti-journalistic speeches, there's a growing wave of harassment against journalists. Hello and welcome to this week's Online brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. RSF or Reporters Sans Frontiers, or Reporters Without Borders, is an NGO that promotes freedom of information and freedom of the press. East Asia and Taipei Bureau Director Cedric Alviani said it's hard for journalists to operate today as there is a growing wave of harassment and intimidation of journalists and anti-press statements. Last year alone, two journalists were assassinated in the EU and around 70 are killed worldwide. To find out more, we are joined today by Mr. Cedric Alviani, the director of East Asia and Taipei Bureau of RSF. Mr. Cedric Alviani, first of all, tell us about the first Press Freedom Awards held in London in November. Well, Reporters, Reporters Without Borders uh, has been organizing the Press Freedom Award for a very long time, and this year was the first time we organized it out of France. We chose our London Bureau to organize that activity, and uh, I believe this is a sign that RSF is getting more and more international. As RSF has so far opened 14 bureaus in the world, we might in the future uh, very regularly organize our Press Freedom Awards uh, ceremonies abroad. So uh, Taiwan probably included? <laughs> well, I, do, I cannot tell you uh, right now because it's a bit short, but it would be the honor of the uh, East Asia Bureau that is located in Taipei to one day uh, host the Press Freedom Award, of course. Nominees from 12 countries were shortlisted for three international awards, and the Secretary General of RSF, uh, Christopher Delors, said that this year's shortlist reflects the challenges faced by bold journalists across the world. Now, what challenges do you think the journalists face? 
Well, we are in a world where it is harder and harder for journalists to operate, not only in the countries that are dictatorial, but also in democracies where there is a growing wave of anti-journalistic speeches, there's a growing wave of harassment against journalists. Uh, last year, in the European Union, two journalists were assassinated, uh, and worldwide, 70 approximately journalists are being killed every year. So the, the situation is uh, getting more and more dangerous for journalists to operate. Yes, uh, indeed. Uh, you mentioned that, for example, like free press, media freedom is very crucial to democracy. But today, it seems that there is a crisis in journalism. Do you agree? Yes, uh, I agree. The crisis comes from several factors. Uh, I believe one factor is the fact that uh, journalism is changing the uh, globalization of the world, the fact that social media now have become the major content distributors, the major content providers in every country, makes that the whole profession of journalism needs to find a new way to, to, to provide its coverage, a new way to promote itself, and I would say a new way to guarantee its independence and the quality of, uh, of, of their coverage. It is harder and harder for media to be able and promote themselves uh, in the world. But we know that in the year 2018, the annual World Press Freedom Index that RSF released in April of 2018, and uh, according to RSF Secretary General Christophe Delors, the result was quite depressing because even a big country like the US, for example, President Trump's attitude towards reporters, the hatred towards journalists. Could you talk about that as well? Yeah. There is a wave of illiberal democracies in the world, which are democracies on the paper, but which are actually ruled a much more authoritarian way. I would use as an example Russia that has elections, but basically the media only report uh, positive things on uh, the current president, Vladimir Putin, and his, uh, his team. So there is no way the general audience would uh, want to vote for someone else. Uh, it's also a concern in European uh, countries like uh, Poland or Hungary where the uh, new governments have been very actively engaging in trying and gag the uh, justice system and also the media in order to gain power. And more generally, more and more politicians are violently attacking the journalists. These are verbal attacks, yes, but they are not without consequence because when journalists are being attacked, harassed or killed, these politicians who have been uh, insulting uh, the journalists uh, have their share of responsibility, mm -hmm. including Donald Trump. Yes, uh, of course. Uh, the White House, for example, revokes a CNN reporter's press pass. Now, what signal do you think does it send to the free expression in the U.S. in particular? Well, this, this of course, sends a very bad signal that um, the... In the USA, there are a part of the politicians who do not 
truly support the press freedom because being in a democracy means that you have to play the game. Even if the reporters write something about you as a politician, even if the reporters write something embarrassing, you have to play the game and you have to keep respecting them. They are an absolutely essential counterpower that must be protected, even by the ones that are being put at risk by this. That is actually the paradox and the difficulty of the freedom of the press, is that the ones who are supposed to guarantee the freedom of the press, meaning our representatives, have very often the temptation to try and reduce it in the name of uh, their own interests. Uh, but So that's why it is so important that the citizens, the public in general, would keep in mind that without the freedom of the press, there is no way for them to guarantee their other freedoms. There is no freedom of vote without freedom of the press. There are no guaranteed human rights without the freedom of the press. There is no uh, rule of law without the freedom of the press. And there is a tendency, either in the political world, in the economic world, or even uh, the social forces try to reduce the freedom of the press. They want to keep a certain control on their environment. And of course, uh, independent journalists bring a little bit of randomness and chaos. But uh, we say at ourselves that this randomness, this chaos is precious. This is the only way for a citizen to ensure that their rights are being respected. You're listening to Underline brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong and today I'm speaking with Mr. Cedric Alviani, the director of East Asia Bureau and Taipei Bureau of RSF or Reporters Without Borders. But a lot of people say that if a democracy like the U.S. can do that, you know, uh, the the White House revoking a CNN uh, reporter's press pass, would other democratic countries do the same then later on? Well, of course, that's uh, that's that's the problem of contagion of this kind of uh, malpractice. I would say this is an opportunity for other democracies, maybe smaller ones, to take the lead. Uh, of course, uh, if the USA, which maybe uh, would have been an example for them in the past, uh, stop behaving properly, then of course we encourage other democracies to uh, take the lead and become uh, good examples. Do not copy the bad ones. But then... What about other authoritarian countries, for example, China? And according to the report released by RSF, China is one of the world's jailer of journalists with more than 60 profession and non-professional journalists in jail. Could you also talk about this? Absolutely. Well, the problem in China is not only the number of journalists in jail, because one could tell that the ratio compared to the Chinese population, uh, is extremely small. Uh, the problem is that in China, it's harder and harder for journalists to do their work as journalists. It's harder and harder because, especially since the rise of President Xi Jinping, there have been an increased control on the profession. This control is operated by daily instructions provided by the party. Uh, it is operated by 
a tight uh, grip on the chief editors of the media. Uh, and it is harder and harder for any journalist in China to uh, do their work as a counterpower and be able to side uh, with the poor, with the weak, with the victims. So I would say that the problem is much wider than on the journalists put in jail. Of course, RSF is calling on China's release of all the journalists and uh, citizen journalists jailed. But we are also demanding that the constitutional freedom, but we are also demanding that the Chinese authorities respect their constitution, which states that uh, freedom of the press is part of the freedoms for the Chinese people. But how does an organization like yours, uh, RSF, uh, give the pressure to China? Well, of course, we are very small and we do, do not have any way to give pressure we are very small and we do not have any way to give a direct pressure to china but it is important to be vocal on what happens in china there is nothing worse for a prisoner uh, than knowing that everybody has forgot him or her while he or her is in jail so it's very important to be vocal and remind the world that 60 journalists are being jailed in China. It's important to be vocal and remind the world that nowadays it is not safe anymore to post a personal comment on WeChat. It is not safe anymore uh, to uh, go and read certain websites. It is not safe anymore to uh, spread informational pictures or to, uh, to, to transfer political cartoons in China. So this is our responsibility as an NGO. Uh, but, you know, normally the pressure for a democratic country can be done through lobbying, for example, in the U.S., but that cannot be done in China. Do you think so? Well, RSF is present in several international organizations. Uh, namely uh, the UN, UNESCO, Council of Europe, and also the Council of Francophonie, which is the French-speaking group of countries. We are as vocal as we can, but of course, China is a growing economic and political power, and uh, less and less of the democracy's representatives dare to raise their voice against what the current Chinese administration is doing. So, of course, we would call on the courage of every representative of the people of a democratic country. It is your responsibility to keep on denouncing China and not put short-term economic or commercial interests uh, before human rights. Mr. Cedric Alviani, we know that uh, recently disinformation or fake news has been growing. It has become a concern for many people, even for the governments of many countries, including the government of Taiwan. How does disinformation or fake news cause an impact on journalism, according to your opinion? Yeah. Of course, fake news is causing a big impact on journalism. Because uh, in the mind of the public, they might tend not to be very clear on what is real and uh, what is not real. And what is usually being noticed is that 
when when people receive too many fake information, they tend not to believe in anything anymore. And that was the first part of our interview with Mr. Cedric Alviani, the director of East Asia Bureau and Taipei Bureau of Reporters Without Borders, or RSF. And that's it for this week's Underline, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kilohertz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kilohertz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kilohertz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kilohertz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.